Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. Pastor Kirk Hall is continuing his expository teaching through the Roman Epistle. Our prayer is that God would use this time to help you continue to grow in your faith. Now let's open our Bibles as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to our hearts. All right, guys. Good to see all of y'all. I hope everyone had a good break. I'm glad to be back. Glad to be with you guys. Looking again at Romans, we'll be starting at 13. So y'all go ahead and open up your Bibles and we will start in Romans chapter 13. And we will be looking at the Christian and the government. Uh, the hot topic of the day, right? Uh, what is that supposed to look like? How are we supposed to respond? I want to tell you this. This is going to hurt some of your opinions. It's going to hurt some of your feelings. God's Word is true and your feelings are not always accurate and correct as the Word of God is. And so, we see as we've looked at all these lessons in the past few lessons before we took the break that there in chapter 12, Paul was covering lots of things. He started out telling us to be a living sacrifice. Um, what that looked like. He covered how our lives should look in, in regard to holiness, and to love, and to virtue, how we ought to treat others, um, even how we ought to treat our enemies. And now he's going to move toward something that we often don't like to talk about. He does, as we have talked about many times in this Bible study, he anticipates the question, okay, you've told us to love our enemies, and that's tough, but surely we don't have to love these Romans. Surely we don't have to submit to this tyranny. Surely you're telling us something different here. We're going to see that he actually doesn't. This is not going to be easy. Uh, not an easy pill for us to swallow um, as he's going to write to the church telling them what their relationship to government ought to look like. And so I want to remind you of the government setting to which this is written. This was not written by George Washington in Washington, D.C. It was not written in our Constitution in the United States of America or our Declaration of Independence. This was written to the church at Rome. This was written during the time of Nero. I'll give you a little brief history on Nero, in case you don't know. I won't give you the extent of it, but I will tell you a few facts that Nero, of course, was the emperor of Rome, A.D. 54 to approximately A.D. 68, and up until the age 34 where he committed suicide. He was, in case this matters to you, I think it's interesting, he was the fifth and final uh, emperor in the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, we know if we study history, he was a fierce persecutor of the Christians. In fact, he blamed the great fires of Rome in 64 A.D. on the Christians. Many historians, even of the day, believe that Nero was responsible for the fires and he just used them as an excuse to persecute Christians even all the more. Um, he heinously tortured Christians. We can read uh, the history of what that looked like and what all he did to Christians. Um, but uh, Tacitus, the historian, the Roman historian of the day, he describes 
the torture that the Christians endured during the time of Nero. One of those things was this. They would take animal hides, cover the Christian with the animal, raw animal hides with meat still attached, and the carcasses of those animals, place them on the Christians, and then they would release wild animals and wild beasts to tear into the carcasses of the animals and eventually to kill the Christian and to consume them. And so those Christians were would perish by those animals, those dogs or beasts that were unleashed to attack them. They nailed Christians to crosses. As we well know, our Savior, Lord Jesus, died on a Roman cross. And that tradition of torture continued. Um, it would light them on fire. It wouldn't just light them on fire, just burn them. It would actually light Christians on fire to produce lights in the streets so that people could see at nighttime when they traveled about. In fact, history says that Nero would actually use Christians in his courtyards for his festivals and things to light up evening activities as they would celebrate their paganism and do all sorts of ungodly things. So Nero and his government, not a good government. Not a good government at all. Not a good leader. In fact, they were godless, to say the least. In fact, the one true God at least. Uh, they were polytheists, which means they believed in all sorts of God. In fact, history says this. Nero made everyone admit that he was God. And he thought that much of himself. However, he did not worship the one true God, nor was he a godly leader, nor was he a godly example, as far as Christianity and the Word of God is concerned. However, I tell you all these things so that you understand that's the governmental context of what we're about to read in chapter 13. Many times we as Americans who have lived our whole life in a democratic republic, um, we as people have fully enjoyed religious freedom, our religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, all the things that we have been granted. However, we're going to see that just because we have those things and just because we may lose those things is not going to give us grounds to rebel against the government. Now, we're going to see that there are some clauses and we're going to cover that at the end. Some clauses to which the Christian must disobey the government. But let's first look at what the Apostle Paul says to the church. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Everyone, verse 1, must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, watch this, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. 
This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All here in Romans chapter 13 is going into how our relationship as Christians ought to look in regard to the government and the authorities, the civil governments that oversee the places that we live. We know that throughout history there has been many different systems of government. He did not say in this one single time, if you like the system and agree with the system, you should obey and submit to that system. He said that system is there because I allowed that system to be there and I am over that system. And that's what I want you to see first that Paul is teaching. The first thing on your notes is this, God's reign over man's government. Verses 1 and 2 makes that very clear that Everyone should submit to the governing authorities because there is no authority except that which God has established. He's sovereign over man's government. I want you to understand that. Even when things seem out of control, right? Because we can all say that looking at our government right now. It's out of control. What that means is it's not what you are used to it being. But I can assure you of this. It is not out of God's sovereign control. I want you to see God's reign over man's government. It is a sovereign reign. He rules over all. Watch this. Even evil governments. Please pay attention. Remember, that's why I told you this first. Paul's writing to Rome under Nero and says, I allowed that government to be there. I am sovereign over even Nero. Now, That can scare some of you, but for some of us, that comforts us. Because we know who our true king is. We know where our true citizenship lies. And it's not here in this country or any other country for that matter. Our true citizenship lies in the kingdom of heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross. We see that he starts off talking about a sovereign reign. That God rules over all, even evil governments. God never lost control of Nero. Many Christians as he murdered and killed. Watch this. God never lost control of Napoleon. God never lost control of Hitler, Stalin or Mussolini, Saddam Hussein. He hasn't lost control of Kim Jong-un, has he? All of his missiles and all of his threats and all of his nice haircuts. He hasn't lost control of Vladimir Putin or anyone else in all of history. Can I tell you this? Please pay attention to me when I say this. Every single one of those people were in the government and in the form of government that they were in and in the position that they were in only because the sovereign God allowed it for His purpose and His plan. Now, does that make sense to me all of the time? No, I don't see the whole purpose and the whole plan. I only see the small portion and the small part that I can see with my human eyes, right? And unfortunately, all we can see now is that on the media. And that's so skewed, we don't even know what to believe. But we know this, that God is making a point here through Paul That He is sovereignly reigning over all governments. So God reigns over man's government. It doesn't matter what government and what government system it is and what leader or dictator that might be leading that government or that system. We see that this is a sovereign reign. But also we see this in those two verses. He says there in in verse 1 that there's no authority except that which God has established. 
and the authorities that exist have been established by God. So he has established these authorities and the system. And so we see that it's not only a matter of God's sovereign reign and his relationship and reign over man's government, but also it's a systematic reign. God has placed these systems and put these systems in place for a reason and for a purpose. That reason and that purpose is that He rules by and through man's governmental system. We can go back to the Old Testament. We can see where God would raise up a nation and a governmental system to execute judgment even on His own people for His own purpose. To discipline them, to get their attention. We see this time and time again. Because He is God and He is in control of all things. and He has all right to be in control of all things. But He sets these systems up for purposes that we know not of. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. It says this, it says, Fear the Lord and the King. It's talking about the earthly king. It says, My son, and do not join with the rebellious. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Do not join with the rebellious. For those two will send sudden destruction upon them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. Did you see that right there? God sovereignly working with the system of government in that situation there, the king that he had allowed to be in place. And the wisdom of Proverbs says this, don't rebel against this, because when you rebel against this, you're rebelling now against two things. You're rebelling against the sovereign reign of God, and you're also rebelling against the systematic reign of that kingdom that God has allowed to be in place. We see this in the Old Testament. We see the example of civil government and civil law. In the Old Testament, we see the example of judges that God set up for His purpose in judging and ruling. We see that God eventually allowed a king in Israel. Though we know that that was not His perfect will, but it was His permissive will. He allowed it to happen because it wouldn't have happened, I assure you, if He didn't sovereignly allow it to happen. And He allowed it to happen and that was the system of government that they had. And so we see that there is a systematic reign that God allows to happen with human authority that He puts in place. Verse 2 says, and when you rebel against that human authority, you're not just rebelling against that authority. You're rebelling against God. As we saw in Proverbs, you got double the consequences. You got the consequences of God for rebelling. You got the consequences of government for rebelling. And we know this. The Word of God says that re- re- rebellion is witchcraft unto the Lord. He sees it as sin. I want you guys to understand that. Because everybody right now wants to think that they have the right to rebel against the government because they have violated our constitutional rights. I'm going to hurt your little American feelings. You're not governed by your constitutional rights, first and foremost. You're governed by the Word of God. And the Word of God right now is canceling out your constitutional rights. We're going to see why. Because God sovereignly has allowed the government that we have in place right now to be in place. But don't think for a second that that shows weakness on God's part and on His behalf. We see that there's a sovereign reign. There's a systematic reign. There's a strong reign. God is still reigning supremely and He is still reigning strongly behind the scenes. He's not impotent or weak. He's not watching everything that's going on and saying, oh, everything's crumbling and everything's out of control. That's what a lot of you are doing. The sky is falling. Oh man, all those, 
All those things we remember from the 1950s. Yeah, but what about all those things that you've forgotten from the 60s and 70s and the 80s where we have continually rebelled against God? And could it be that in His strong reign, in the reign and the rule of His might, He's never going to surrender to anyone, could it be that He's bringing upon this nation what He desires to see brought upon this nation? Psalm 66 Verse 7, in case you think that God's just standing by as some weak, impotent, helpless being. No, that's not the case. He's still God Almighty, omnipotent over all things. Psalm 66, verse 7 says, He rules forever by His power. His eyes watch the nations. And in saying this, watch. Watch what comes next. Let not the rebellious rise up against Him. You say, but this is talking about rising up against the government. Did you see verse 2? If you rise up against the government, you're rising up against God. Oh, and it gets quiet, doesn't it? If you're rising up against the government, you're rising up against God because He has placed those rulers in authority and He is strongly reigning even over them. Even though you can't see it, you must recognize it. He's still in complete control. God uses everything, good and evil, for His purpose. We, we remember Romans 8.28, don't we? And we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. Has He canceled that out? Do we trust that? I can tell you this right now. Listen, believers, those of you who love God and who have been a call to, called according to His purpose, He is using the corrupt government that you see in our country for His glory. You say, what? Ultimately, I assure you, it will end in His glory. He is ruling on high with all power and authority. And, and we just saw there in the Psalms, and He will rule like this forever. All glory and honor and praise be unto Him. He rules over everything. His purpose, His plan, His glory. And He's working all things to the good. To those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And what does that mean? What is our good? What is our chief end? Our chief end is to glorify God. He's working everything for the glory of God. And it's high time we as Christians don't fret about all the things that are out of our control, but we rejoice that everything is under God's control. Everything is under His strength and His power and His omnipotence. I want to say this. I might get lynched. This may be my last night. That's okay. Joe Biden is the President of the United States of America because God sovereignly allowed it to happen. If you would like to argue that fact, I would direct you back to verses 1 and 2 that we just covered. Joe Biden is the President of the United States because a sovereign God has allowed it. He has not surrendered his power to Joe Biden. He's definitely not surrendered his power to Kamala Harris. And I assure you, he has not surrendered his power to Nancy Pelosi. He's not surrendered his power. So it doesn't matter what side of the political argument that you are on. As a believer, we are on the side of God which says in His Word that He reigns with power forever. Nothing going to thwart His will or His plan. Perhaps He has allowed Joe Biden to be the President of the United States in a liberal system to take over. To show us what happened we turn our back on Him. Would that be consistent with what He's done throughout biblical history when His people 
would whore after idols and sexual immorality and all the things that we see our nation is whoring after now? Would it be consistent? Would that be consistent with the character and the nature of God throughout the entirety of Scripture? I'll tell you this, so you don't have to do a whole lot of research, but you can. Yes, it would be consistent with who He is. And so could it be that this is what has happened? If it is, we as Christians ought not to say, I want it back my way. We ought to say, Father, forgive us if we're guilty of any of these things that have caused you to bring judgment and to allow wicked rulers to rule over a country that was once governed by men who sought the will of God. Forgive us that we have fallen from that which you have allowed us to be at one time. I remember a story about a place called Nineveh. You remember that place? Wicked government, wicked leaders. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. He says, nope, thanks for asking. I'm going to Tarshish. You can read Jonah, and if you're through reading Jonah and you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, read it again because you missed it. Jonah thinks he's going to do what he wants to do, and he gets on a boat, and then we know how the story goes. He gets thrown overboard because the boat was about to capsize, and God graciously saved him by fish. Everybody thinks it's a fish called Wanda or named Wanda. It's a fish named Grace. Grace swallows him up and from the belly of Grace, God gets Jonah's attention. He goes back to this corrupt government. Preaches a revival. Guess what? Their lives are changed. Their country is changed. Their government is changed. I would love to tell you that it stayed that way. Just a short time later, the Assyrians went back to following untrue gods doing evil things, evil practices. But we look at this. We see that God is sovereignly in control of everything, and there is a purpose even in our government in the shape that it is in right now. This is ample opportunity. We know this. Paul started Romans, the first of this letter, with the Gospel. This is ample opportunity, even in this room, for God to raise up a bunch of Jonahs who will not... listen. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh and rebel against their government. He went to Nineveh and he preached the truth of the Word of God. He preached repentance and turning to God. This is an ample opportunity for men who say that they're Christians to preach the Gospel and let the Gospel be the protest of evil. Let the Gospel be the thing that turns the hearts of the wicked. That's the only thing that's really going to turn their heart anyway, isn't it? Your protest, whether they be peaceful protest or whether they be unpeaceful protest, and we don't even know the difference nowadays because it just depends which news outlet is calling the shot. Your protests aren't going to change the hearts of wickedness. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is a righteousness as we've already learned that comes from God. And it is that righteousness that comes from God that's going to change wicked hearts as He has changed ours. So we see God's reign over man's government in the first two verses. What you see in the next two verses, what I want you to do before we move to that, don't let your displeasure in what you're seeing in our country cause you to question the sovereignty of God. Isn't that a valid statement? Don't let your displeasure cause you to question or to doubt the sovereignty of God. Paul makes that very clear. God's in control of all government and all authorities on this earth. But when you see the next thing is God's reason for man's government. 
God's reason for man's government. Verse 3, he tells us this, why civil government exists. He says, for rulers, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. I want you to see God's reasons or reason for man's government. Why does God put man's government and allow man's government to be in place? The civil governments that we've seen, the ones we like, the ones we don't like. Why does he allow these to happen? We can go all the way down to a smaller scale instead of comparing to the major scale of the government of the United States, let's go down to a smaller scale. Let's go to the indigenous tribe somewhere in some third world country. And I promise every tribe will have some type of ruler or king, even if it's a tribe of only 20 or 30 people. And that king will have some type of law. He will have some type of rules that govern that actual village or that group of people. And so we see that God does this, the civil government, Whatever scale that it's on, he does it and he allows it for a purpose. I want you to see the purposes in the verses that we just read. Number one, it's to make civil laws, to set boundaries. How many of you know we need boundaries? As much as we want to gripe and complain about our system, we have a system that has lots of boundaries. Now, we know this before everyone starts complaining, but some people aren't holding up the boundaries. The police officers put them in jail and the DAs let them off. I can't answer for those people. I can tell you, I get your frustration. I understand it, but those laws, those boundaries have been put in place so that man's not just running out of control. And guess what? Man's not just running out of control, right? There is some restraint in the world or man would completely kill each other. Remember, go back to Cain and Abel, the first two, and there was no restraint. What happened? Cain killed Abel. That's what would happen if there was no governmental restraint. There was no civil Law and obedience that God has called through this civil law, these boundaries that He set. Israel was governed with those boundaries. God's chosen people had to have a system of government to rule over them. We know we see that in the Mosaic law. We see that in the civil law that was given to Moses that He then gave to the people and that they governed the people by. He established these laws for boundaries. We must have boundaries. They're good things. Where would we be without civil boundaries? Civil chaos, wouldn't it? In fact, we see this in some examples where you go into Africa and there's these villages that don't have any government. There's total anarchy. Right? And there are these people in America who want anarchy. Sure you do. You don't want anarchy. That's no government at all. It's godlessness. We're in a system of government that God has set up. We see this. We see that there are some laws that establish us and that keep us. We see that He set up man's civil government to make civil laws or boundaries but also to mandate civil justice. Mandate civil justice. The punishment when these boundaries are crossed. We can look into the law of the Old Testament. We can see this. When someone did something wrong, there was a punishment that fit the crime. Right? Watch this. And even sometimes that punishment was that person who was guilty's very life. They were required to give their life because they had taken a life. And so we see that God set up boundaries, but He also set up those mandates of civil justice to say, okay, when these boundaries are crossed, there's penalties. And thankfully, 
We live in a system today. We're governed. Boundaries. There's punishment. I know you ignore them. Some of you think I can get X amount of tickets a year. My insurance doesn't go up, so I'll get all of them. But you say you want a good government. You don't follow the bad government that you gripe about. Got quiet, didn't it? So we look at this and we see that there's civil justice too. God sets this up and that's the reason that He has allowed man's government. So that crimes will be punished. Crimes will be punished on this earth. That you will suffer the consequences of your actions. Why does He do this? He does it to make civil laws, those boundaries, to mandate civil justice. But He does it to maintain civil rest, peace. We know He's a God of peace. Can I tell you this? As much as you want peace, God wants it that much more. So he sets up civil government, civil governments of men to maintain this peace. Peace and order, as again, we look at the example of the Israelites, peace and order was maintained through the laws that God had given them through the system of government that He had set up for them. So we see God's reason for man's government. God uses man and His governmental system to restrain evil and to keep the peace. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for law enforcement that's governmental, for the military that's governmental, for those who give those orders, for those men and those women to do the things that they do to keep us safe, right? Let's just talk about that for a second. How many of you were murdered in your sleep last night? Could be that you weren't murdered in your sleep by some depraved, crazed maniac because they knew that law enforcement would be there, execute an arrest, and then that they would go through the judicial system and that there would be a punishment executed upon them. And so we see God uses man's government to restrain evil. Now can he completely restrain evil through man's government? Absolutely not. Because even in man having good government, a democracy like we live in, are there sinners involved in that? So it's an imperfect system, isn't it? Go like this. It's an imperfect system. God knows that He's dealing with an imperfect system. You know why He's dealing with an imperfect system and He's okay with it? Because He's going to show you one day what a perfect system of government and a perfect kingdom looks like. This is all the reason and all the more that we ought to long for the kingdom of God. Remember the Lord's Supper? I mean the Lord's Prayer, excuse me, where He prayed, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what we're praying? Oh, we're not. We're too busy griping about who got elected and how they cheated. Can I tell you this? If they cheated to get Him in office, a sovereign God did not stop it so that it could happen because it is His will. So quit whining about that. See the bigger picture. We see God's reign over man's government. We see God's reason for man's government. He uses the government of man to keep wickedness and evil at bay as much as man can do in their own wickedness and evil. Now, we get to the next part. The hard part. Our response to man's government. How should we respond to the government of man? Verse 5 says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit and we all like that word when it's found in Ephesians 5.22 and it's talking about our wives. 
Huh? I mean, you get amens when I say submit then. I say it now and you get omes. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. What is he talking about? He's saying because I just told you it's right, because when you rebel against them, you're rebelling against God. And it ought to violate your conscience as a believer. He goes on, he says, This is also why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants. But you said this was going on under Nero. Isn't it crazy? Nero was a servant of God even though he was a pagan idolater. God was using him for his own will and purpose. Did you know this? Were it not for the persecution of Nero, none of you would probably be believers right now because Christianity would have stayed in its little pod over there. Persecution that God allowed through Nero, a tyrant, forced the church out of that comfort and out of that area so that they could go out into the world just as Jesus commanded them to do. And here we are today on the other side of the globe. We've heard the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and we've been saved. Thank you, God, for using an evil person like Nero for your good pleasure and perfect will. This is also why we pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, oh man, did this have to happen right now, Pastor? If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. Guys, let me tell you this. Shame on you. If Joe Biden walked in this room at this moment, You didn't stand to your feet in honor of the President of the United States just because you're bitter about a kingdom that you don't even belong in anyway. He says, show that person respect who's worthy of respect. Don't just respect the candidate that you voted for. Huh? Some of you sound just as whiny and as gripey and complaining as the liberals sounded when Trump won. You sound just like them. Show respect. So the best way that I can respect Joe Biden is to pray for his soul. Pray for his soul. Isn't that what we ought to be concerned with anyways? Instead of our pocketbooks, our easy, breezy American dream way of life that we've grown so accustomed to that we're so afraid to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, we won't know what to do when it hits us. Just give everyone what you owe him. You owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Right? Couldn't the kids get a dose of that these days when the police officer pulls them over? He's not a huh. He's not a uh-uh. He's a sir. Wouldn't it be good for us to teach our kids that? That he's a sir. I promise you. I know a few guys who probably could testify to this in this room. There's been a many a person not get ticketed who might have got ticketed just because they showed honor and respect. Yes, sir. No, sir. I know I blew it, sir. You sure did. I appreciate you owning it because you know what? A lot of people don't own it anymore. Thank you for showing that courtesy and that respect and that honor. I'm going to show the same back to you. So we look at these things. We see what our response to government ought to be. Do what's right. Pretty clear, right? Do what's right. According to your conscience, do what's right. Let me tell you this. If you're born again, believe the Holy Spirit lives in you. Your conscience has been awakened and it has been cleansed. 
and your conscience is going to move you by conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. It's going to move you to do what's right all of the time. Not some of the time, not a percentage of the time, all of the time. You know the difference between right and wrong now. You actually have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you so that you can do right where you couldn't do right before you were in Christ. So do what's right. As a believer, our concern ought to be doing what's right. He says, it's taxes, pay them. It's respect, give it. It's honor, show honor. Do what's right. Do what's requested of you. What's requested, right? When that police officer who works for the government says, I'm going to get you, need you to come on, step out of the vehicle, come to the back for me. Here's the wrong answer. I'm not getting out of my vehicle. i got rights. It's not going to go smoothly for you from that point on, I assure you. Yes, sir, no problem. Go to the back of the vehicle. He's teaching us something here that there is a breakdown in the families of teaching this to our children. Right? That's why when the police say, hey, turn around, put your hands behind your back, the kid takes off running because he's never been taught, no, that's not what you do. You show respect where you should show respect. You show honor where honor should be shown. So you teach them these things. Do what's right. Do what's requested. When the government says, do this, do it. Remember when Jesus taught the lesson? That person says, carry my pack a mile. Carry it two miles. What he's talking about? He's talking about a Roman soldier under the tyranny of Rome making someone against their own will Carry their pack. Why? Because they had the authority to do that. Remember Jesus' crucifixion? Jesus was carrying His cross and He couldn't bear it any longer. What happened? Anybody know the story? Come on, scholars, let me see. Huh? Pulled someone from the crowd, right? Said, you carry His cross. He said, I don't feel like carrying His cross today. I'm not going to do it. There would have been a fourth cross that day. Huh? Huh? No, he carried his cross. Why? Because the Roman authority told him to carry the cross and it was the right thing to do. He did what was requested. He didn't violate his conscience. He did what he was supposed to do. Do what is right. Do what is requested. Do what is required. That's when he starts talking about taxes and stuff like that. Whether you like it or not. Right? Whether you like it or not, Jesus gave us a really good lesson on this. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. It says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's plain and simple. Right? Shame on you believers who pay your tithes and offerings, but you cheat on your taxes. Wow, that's quiet. Do what's required. Our response to the government ought to reflect Christ, shouldn't it? Here's, here's Christ's response to the government. You want to see it? Right? Because some of you are thinking, well, Jesus wouldn't be acting like this. You want to bet? Let's watch it. Matthew chapter 27. Here's Jesus, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, governmental authority, Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Right? He asked him a question. He gave him an answer. Verse 12. When he was accused of being, accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Isn't that interesting? He gave no answer to the religious authorities because they weren't really religious authorities. 
But he gave an answer to the governmental authority because he was an authority. Don't, don't miss that in that text. Jesus, no, Jesus owed no explanation to the false religion of the day. But he did give an explanation to Pilate, the governor, the one who was in authority. He said, just as you said. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Right? Pilate brings up, they're, they're bringing a bad testimony against you. But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate was even amazed. Jesus didn't try to defend himself. Didn't have to, did he? Right? I, I can promise you this. The Father had that in control. He was already defended. And Jesus understood that 100%. That everything that had happened was not out of his sovereign control ever at one moment of any of this. So Jesus respects the government. Where are we on this? He's our example. Or is he? Is he only our example when it's convenient for us? Is he, or is he our example in all things? So we see our response to man's government ought to be do what's right, do what's requested, do what's required. Just as Jesus gave that example in his life. Treated unjustly the whole time. I mean, if anybody could have rebelled against the government and the system, wouldn't it have been Jesus? Yet he did not. He surrendered to it and he submitted to it even when he was charged unjustly. We see our response to man's government. And then lastly, I want you to see this. And we're going to leave Romans for the rest of this lesson. We're not going to leave Romans for the rest of this lesson just to add something to it. It's very important that we see this because I know what the question is going to be now. God's Word is going to answer that question. I believe this about Romans chapter 13, verses 1-7. through I don't believe that this is an all-exclusive teaching on our relationship with the government. I believe this is teaching the early church how they ought to act toward Rome. And it teaches us how we ought to act toward our government within the realistic bounds of the Word of God. I want us to see that. Our reaction to ungodly government. Okay? What do we do when the government mandates or passes laws that violate God's commands, God's Word, or the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the gathering of the saints? What do we do when the government violates those things? Because those things matter, don't they? Don't those things matter? Christian men, don't those things matter more than your bank accounts? Your retirement fund? Don't those things, back there in the back, don't those things matter more than those than your earthly pleasures? You can't get on your dear lease because the cost of living came up under this corrupt government and you're more upset with that than you are about the laws that are being passed that allow people to murder babies. There's a problem. We're all out of whack, aren't we? So when we look at the reality of Scripture here, when the government begins to mandate things that come against the commands of God's Word, now we've got another topic at hand. We've got another issue here. I'm going to give you some examples really quickly, as quickly as I can. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, we may go over just a little bit tonight. I'm going to give you five examples. I'm going to give you two from the Old Testament, three from the, the New Testament. One in, one's in the Old Testament. I'm going to read the entire account. So go ahead in your Bible. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 3 in your Bible. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to look at the entire chapter here. Some of this will be new to some of you. Some of you have heard this story a million times. 
But I want you to see it in the context of what we're talking about tonight. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, taking the Jewish people into captivity. Watch this. Only because the sovereign God prophesied that it was going to happen and He allowed it to happen and it happened exactly the way that He said it was going to happen. A little backdrop on this. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other providential officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. If you hadn't followed it so far, this is an idol that he made. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other providential uh, provincial, uh, officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all, the ki- all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Why is this a problem? It's idolatry. How many of you understand? God's Word commands His people. What? Do not worship idols. Do have any God before me? Here we are. Nebuchadnezzar set up this golden image. Verse 8, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So we see three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they would not, They would not bow down to an edict that the king made because that edict violated the commands of the Word of God that they should not worship and bow down to idols. You see, they had the right unto God in this moment to not bow down. Watch what happened. Curious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, little g-gods, of course, or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He said, I'm going to give you another chance. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Well, you already said immediately once, and you're not doing it, you give them another chance. Well, watch what they do with their next chance. Then what little g-god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Pay attention to this, Christian brothers. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. and He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is an example of some godly men rebelling against the government because the government was trying to get them to violate a direct command from God. Pay attention to that. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Killed the soldiers who were trying to throw them in the fire. Pay attention to this. This is real. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He didn't even know what was going on. He looked. He says, it's got to be something mystical or something uh, 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 that's worship worthy. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's an angel. I don't know. Many people like to say he recognized Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize Jesus. He didn't know what he was looking at. But he goes on and he says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of the nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They just got out of the fire. They didn't even smell like fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel, sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any little g-god except their own capital G, God. Watch what he does next. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other little G God can save in this way. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you read the next verse, got a promotion. Now, why do we say all that? Well, it's a story that we could read it a hundred times and it gets better every time you read it, right? Why do we say all that? Now, they had been mandated to do a lot of things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't rebel when they were exiled out of Israel, did they? Nope, no record of that. They didn't rebel at any of the governmental laws and statutes that Nebuchadnezzar governed with, and that his, you saw all the officials, prefects and satraps and all those things, governors, and never gives an account of them rebelling against the things they didn't like about their particular government. However, when it came down to violating the commands of God, now we had a different issue there, didn't we? A different issue. Right when the government begins to force idol worship on us, can I say this to each of you here? I'll be the first one to rebel. I'll be the first one to say, no, I will not bow down to an idol. There is but one true God, and that is the God who I will worship, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. The God who came to this earth as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who died for my sin. I'm going to use it as an opportunity to share the gospel, I assure you. We see that first example. Let's look at the next example. And we can see it in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's full of examples. Daniel, who went into exile under the Babylonians, and then now we see him, and he's under the Medo Persian Empire. King Darius. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them. One of them was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them 
so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Pay attention to that. Daniel was not bending the governmental rules even though he was in a position of power. And there were guys looking to find him breaking rules. And he wasn't. He was submitting to the governmental authorities and he was doing the right thing with respect and honor. He couldn't find anything. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And boy, weren't, weren't they right. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O king, Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god, little g, or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now O king issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the, window, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God. Now let me tell you this. Daniel did not do that in protest. He did that every day prior to this. He goes and he kneels down and he prays, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. See? Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from, from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den where he came near the den. He called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Listen, this pagan saw the example of Daniel and his submission to the government. And he knew that Daniel was a man of honor, that he truly was a man of God, and there was something to his God. In fact, this evil king was on his side. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of these lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. 
I want us to pay attention to those Old Testament examples because they're great examples. They're great examples of our reaction to ungodly government. But I also want you to see that this was also happening and did happen in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5. Turn over there in your Bibles. Acts chapter 5, and we get to verse 25. Verse 25, Acts chapter 5, says this, Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went to his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the, the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And he gave you... We gave you strict orders not to teach in His name. Talking about the name of Jesus, of course. He said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied. Remember Peter? The guy who before Christ was resurrected, Peter was restored. He's the one who cowered down to a little girl. Said that he didn't even know Jesus at all. Here he is, Peter and the other apostles, replying, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. He said, you can't make us shut up. We're not going to shut up. We're going to preach the Gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ Himself commanded us to preach the Gospel. So we see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They followed the government. They submitted to the government's authority as long as it did not defy a direct command from God's Word. The moment that it did, they rebelled and they did what God said over what man was saying. We see here in this example, Peter and the apostles doing the same thing. We see this as we read on and we finish out the New Testament with the book of Revelation. We see in the book of Revelation that those who will be saved during the Great Tribulation They will be saved because they will be killed for not worshiping the beast. Please see that. Please understand what that means. The government of the world is going to tell them, worship the beast. They're going to remember the commands of God and they're going to say, no, I'm not going to bow down to an idol. It's going to cost them their lives. They're going to die for their faith. We know this, that Paul, many times, the third example, we see in the New Testament, many times over, obeyed the laws of the land, submitted to the governmental authorities, but did not bend when he was told to stop preaching the Gospel, that he was going to be killed or martyred or or imprisoned or suffer some type of persecution. He continued to preach the Gospel all the way until he was beheaded for preaching the Gospel on the Ossian Way in 67 A.D. And so we see that our reaction to the ungodly governmental authorities that we might see must be governed by the Word of God and the commands of God. So how does this look in real time? In all of the examples that we looked at, Old Testament examples, New Testament examples, as we kind of draw this to a close and wrap it up, Submission to God's Word always took precedence over governmental mandates or laws or executive orders. Whatever may come our way, 
if they violated the commands of God, or if they commanded the believers not to preach the Gospel, the believers did what God said instead of what man was saying. It's very important that we remember that. That is the only time that we are excused to rebel against the government of man, against the civil authorities. I don't care what system you're in. If it's a communist system, if it's a democratic system, if it's a tribal system, whatever system of government you find yourself in, the only time that you are allowed to rebel against that system is when you are submitting to God's Word over that system, their mandates, their laws, etc. In all these examples we see, we submitted to God's law over man's law, but also pay attention to the second thing. This is why we want our old America back. Here it is. Every one of these men suffered the consequences of choosing obedience to God over obedience to man. Every one of them faced the consequences, didn't they? He said, yeah, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into fire and they were delivered, but how many more weren't? Yeah, but Daniel, he was delivered by, by, from the lion's mouths and nothing happened to him. Yeah, but how many weren't? What about Peter? It was told to stop preaching the Gospel in Acts chapter 5, but we know this. You know why Peter's life ended? Because he would not stop preaching the Gospel. Why? The Lord Jesus commanded him to preach the Gospel. And he rebelled against the governmental authorities. And watch this. He was crucified by the Romans on a cross upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified right side up because that's the way Jesus was crucified. Paul, who did not rebel against the rules and laws of the governmental authority of Rome because Paul was a Roman citizen. He did not rebel against the emperor until he was commanded not to preach the Gospel. And then, because he still preached the Gospel, he had to suffer, and he had to suffer persecution, great persecution. You can read about it all through the, Old, the New Testament. And then we see that he also inevitably, ultimately, was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ and for the fact that he would not stop preaching the Gospel. So understand this. When you choose to submit to God's law, and God's Word, over man's law and man's decree, because it violates God's Word, there's going to be earthly consequences. And a lot of times, the earthly consequence is going to be suffering. And isn't that really what we're saying as Americans when we say, we want it to be nice and pretty like in the 1950s? You can't turn your back on God, America. No nation has ever been able to turn their back on God and to continue to prosper under His grace. Please understand that. I say that because we're going to get to the, uh, the part of this I really want you to see tonight in just a second. We need to get on our knees and we need to pray. Because the only one who's going to change, the only one who has the ability to change the hearts of men, men in this room, or men in the House, in the Senate, or in the White House, the only one who can change them is God. The only way that He can change them is through Jesus Christ. But we have to understand that when we do choose God over the system of this world, there's going to be suffering that comes. Is it worth it to you? It's worth it to you. It's worth it to these men who we looked at as examples and many more who we don't have time to look at as examples. You know what was interesting about them? In every situation, they had the security. They had submission to God's Word over man's rule. They had to su suffer 
undergo some type of suffering. They also had the security of knowing God is their deliverer no matter what. We read through this kind of quick and we might have passed over it without noticing it, but I want to go back and revisit Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego real quick. Chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Oh, what faith. And He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But watch this. Watch verse 18. Our prayer is for revival. Lord, we know that You can bring revival to a nation. We've seen You do it in the past. But even if He does not, He said, we want You to know, O king, that we will not serve Your gods or worship the image of gold You have set up. He says, God can deliver us from the fire, but even if He doesn't, it's not going to change our mind. Could God bring a revival to this country? Do I pray that He does? And do I pray that He will? Yes. But even if He doesn't, even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down to their system. We're not going to bow down to their, their direct violations and commands that oppose the Word of God. We're not going to do that. So how do we wrap this up? How do we apply this to our life? I'll make it quick. Number one, write this down. We as Christians must respect, honor, and obey civil government and its God's God-given position of authority in our lives. We must. Why? Because we just read Romans 13. It's our required responsibility. Number two, work within the boundaries of the laws of civil government to oppose evil in a non-rebellious, non-threatening, and non-violent way. You hear that? Blowing up abortion clinics is not going to stop abortion. Right? Assaulting people outside, ladies outside of abortion clinics verbally, not going to stop abortions. They have already occurred in man's wicked heart at that point. The only thing that's going to change their heart, if you want to go to an abortion clinic and stand outside and give out gospel tracts and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, go for it. We're commanded to do that. Whatever you do, do it in a non-rebellious, non-threatening, non-violent way. When they say, hey sir, you're going to have to leave, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Pray for those in civil authority. Ask yourself this question. Do you gripe more about political things? Or do you pray more about political things? Do I need to say that again or was that clear? Because we know what we can fall into. Let's pray like we really believe that God can change the hearts of the most wicked men, most wicked women. Pray for those in civil authority. Number four, disobey the government when the proclamation of the Gospel or the commands or instructions of Scripture are violated. And only then. Only then. Number five, watch this. Endure the consequences of, of disobedience to the government. Even when you disobey and it's right according to the Word of God, there are sometimes still going to be consequences. The Apostle Paul spent half of his ministry in prison. Why? Preaching the Gospel. 
Number six, and the final one, trust God to deliver you from suffering for your obedience to His Word over your obedience to men. Be assured of this, He already has. He already has. If you're here and you're in Christ, you've already been delivered from this world. The fact that this world and the things of this world, has already, they have all already been overcome through the blood of Jesus Christ for you. Rest in that. Rest in that. Don't place your hope in the good old U.S. of A. Place your hope in the King of kings and Lord of lords who was and is and is to come. His eternal kingdom that He has graciously included us in all. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You how it guides every area of our life. May we see it as true and absolutely true. May we live like we believe it. Because Lord, we know this. That if we don't live it, we really don't believe it. God, I pray for these men in this room that You raise them up as model citizens. We give respect where respect is due and honor where honor is due. But most importantly, that they honor You and Your Word above all things. Lord, I pray that we use every opportunity that we have as the days draw near Your appearing. God, I pray that we share the Gospel with passion and zeal like never before. But I pray that we pray for this country, this government, for the fact that we are all but a pagan nation now. You would turn hearts of men and women to You. They would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Lord, use us in any way that You see fit to accomplish that. We give You praise for who You are. We thank You for the deliverance that we already have in Christ. We long for it. We may see You face to face. We pray these things in Your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.